We will be in Matthew 14. Uh, we can go ahead and be turning there. Um, today's message is how to live the normal Christian life. How to live the normal Christian life. Um, if I was looking at the AP uh, News app, and it was talking about they had 150 pictures to take that kind of looked for the, for the, uh, the year. 150 pictures. And they just basically summarized 2022 as the year where the planet felt like it was, looked like it was bursting at the seams. Just through those pictures, just everything, right? War and all the rest. And I'd already shared with you for us a couple of weeks ago, it felt like the planet was bursting at the seams. And I imagine you have stories too, things that happened in the, in the past year where um, it felt like things were bursting at the seams. For you, it might have been financially, it could have been relationally, it could have been physically, it could have been a lot of different ways, could have been a combination, probably was a combination of those things. And, and so what do we do with that? And, um, you know, why, why can't we get back to, you know, life is normal and, and then we kind of go, you know, in every category, even in our faith. And um, as I think about the, the normal Christian life, I have a feeling it's not exactly what we might describe if we were to put it on an index card. There's actually a book out called The Normal Christian Life. I believe it's called The Norm- Normal Christianity by Watchman Nee. Now, there's a name for you to name your next son, Watchman, and his last name was Nee, N-E-E. Uh, a, a Chinese pastor probably um, lived 50 years ago um, and wrote several books, and one of them was Normal Christianity, and it looks nothing like American Christianity. <laughs> Normal, American Christianity feels more like what David Platt described as um, the American dream that's been baptized. Uh, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? A house, a spouse, 2.5 kids, a dog, and a cat. <laughs> so you can put your kids through college so they can do the same thing, right? The normal Christian life is so much more than that. But it includes something that we try to avoid or resist at every opportunity, and that is suffering. It's just part of it. And yet, that's part of one of the essential ingredients, I think, in making the normal Christian life so unique and so precious that people would live and choose to live in such a way that they might even die in that life. That doesn't make sense from the outside looking in, right? That just doesn't. But from the inside looking out, and we're going to get that inside view from Matthew, I think you'll begin to be reminded of what it is this we call this faith following Christ. So with that, let's jump in. We're going to start in um, at the very end of 13. I just want to read to kind of catch us up on the context. It's been a few weeks since we were here. And I want to see, I want to show you two pictures of unbelief. I want to show you two pictures of belief, and then I want to show you the fruit of belief. Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished these parables, he just went through eight parables in chapter 13, he moved on from there, coming, on, coming to his hometown, which you remember is Nazareth in the region of Galilee, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, which would have been something that any traveling rabbi would do, and their initial reaction was they were amazed. And we're not quite sure why they're amazed, but it becomes clear as we learn more because he says, where did they start to say, the people that know who Jesus is, who remember him when he was Yehi, they say, uh, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? 
So he's preaching in such a way that's amazing. He's healing people. That's amazing. Verse 35, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Parentheses, remember the scandal. And aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, aren't all his sisters with us, reminding us that Jesus grew up with a family and that these people knew this family and knew this family well? Aren't all his, okay, where did this man get all these things? It's like they're beside themselves, and then we get clarity on exactly how they feel, and they took offense at him. Someone comes, preaches the word, preaches truth with, from a righteous life, and heals people, and this is the reaction he gets, offense. Righteousness offends wickedness. Verse uh, continues, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home, which tells you a little bit about the unbelief in the town and the unbelief in his family at that time. And he did not do many miracles, and then he tells us why, because of their lack of faith. So unbelief picture number one. Number two, starting in 14.1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. All right, let's stop. Who in the world is Herod the Tetrarch? What is a Tetrarch? And why John the Baptist? I mean, I didn't think we had Baptists yet. Okay, so let's catch you up. This is Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch means like the ruler over a fourth or one part in four. Remember our Christmas story, which we just reviewed recently. Herod the Great, Herod, this Herod's father, was king over the whole region that was considered Israel under the empire of Rome. So he was a vassal king, okay, a provincial king. He dies and he, he leaves. The, they divide his kingdom into four parts and they put over them a tetrarch, a ruler over each fourth. One of them is a guy named Philip, a half-brother of this guy who's over another fourth named Herod Antipas. Okay, I don't think it has anything to do with pasta, but anyway, Antipas, okay? And then he says, so, so we're here, Matthew's giving us update on Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch. He hears reports about what Jesus is doing. He's preaching, people are amazed, some are annoyed and, and offended, but most are really moved and many are healed and, of course, demons are cast out. So we have people who are paralyzed who are walking, we have people who are blind who are seeing, people who are mute who are speaking, and nobody's getting an insurance bill. I mean, it's just unbelievable. People don't know what to do with this. But there's a story here that Herod reminds us of, and he's going to give us a flashback about this guy named John the Baptizer. The baptizer is in some translations. He is the one who baptized Jesus. He is the six-month-older-than-Jesus cousin of Jesus. So he's family, but he's dead. And so Herod thinks Jesus is John come back, and he's kind of got that sense of he's come back to haunt me almost. So here's the backstory. Starting in verse 3, we get the flashback. And this probably goes back to right after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness around Matthew 4. Verse 3, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias. Herodias is the, well, it's going to tell us. Who's she? His brother Philip's wife. Think half-brother. Think one of a lot of brothers all competing for thrones. 
Okay, I guess the first Game of Thrones, maybe. For John had been saying to him, John had been saying to Herod, Antipas, it is not lawful for you to have her. Well, wait a minute. She's married and he's married. Oh, okay, you're right. It's not, it's not okay for you, according to God's word, to be married. And John the Baptist was not afraid to speak to power, and he did. And he got arrested. He got imprisoned by Herod. Herod wanted to kill John, it says, but he was afraid of the people. And the reason is because they considered John a prophet. And, of course, Jesus refers to John as the greatest of all the prophets. Um, and that's saying something when you read your Old Testament. Verse 6. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, okay, so Philip's wife Herodias, who wants to be and and maybe already by now is now married to Herod, don't even ask me, I don't know how that played out, her daughter from who knows who danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised her with an oath to give her whatever she asks. So this is not a 10-year-old birthday party, okay? This is more like a bachelor party, all right? And he is very pleased with this daughter. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. I don't know about you, but if I could ask for anything, that probably wouldn't be on the list. The king was distressed, you think? Uh, but... Because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted. And John had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Yes, those were violent times. Okay? We still live in a violent world. We're just pretty shielded in, from that reality. A lot of the world still deals with that kind of violence. John's disciples, John the Baptist had disciples, his disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is family. So now Jesus is not just family. This isn't family like the ones that we just mentioned earlier who didn't believe. This is one who believed and was the forerunner of Jesus. His job was to herald the coming of the king. So if you study history and you study kings and the way they operated, you know that when a king would get his entourage together with the military, they would march to, from, from one city to another. He would ride in a carriage and they would march. And they would send heralds ahead, people that would trumpet and shout, the king is coming, get ready, prepare yourself, cut your grass, comb your hair, take a bath, things like that, right? Get ready, here comes the king because he's worthy of your adoration. Okay? Well, he's doing that in a spiritual sense. Prepare for the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and you need to do more than wash your hair. All right? All right, so um, he, uh, let's see here. So that's, so Jesus is, John is the one who's related to Jesus. He's family, the forerunner of Jesus, spiritual family, and yet he just was executed because he spoke truth to power. Okay? Jesus has a lot of reasons to grieve here. And I think we just kind of read past it and we really miss that. He's grieving. I don't know if there's any other person on the planet that understands where Jesus is coming from better than John the baptizer. So what does he do? He does what most of us would do under those circumstances. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew. Isn't that what we do when we're hurting? And it's, you know... There's some good to that, and there's some, you know, warnings 
about that. Be careful about isolation when you're hurting. But he withdrew to grieve because grieving is good. It's not pleasant. It's healthy. And there's a good way to do it, and it takes time. He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. This was his plan. I need to be with my daddy. Okay, that's a good place to be. However, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Now, here's someone who needs compassion, who needs mercy, who needs time and space, and he sees them, he sees them in their need, and he has compassion on them and healed their sick. In other words, he saw them, and he didn't just say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you feel that way, and then move on. But he got involved. He rolled his sleeves up, and he began praying for God to heal people through him, and he did heal people, lots and lots of people. All day. I don't know about you, but doing anything all day is tiring, right? How many of you are like, all we did was drive today and I'm exhausted, right? Traveling is tiring. All I did was shop today and I'm worn out, right? All I did was sit around the house and eat junk food and hang out with family, right? Well, imagine ministering to people who just want from you and you're being drained physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. He's tired. And, oh, yeah, he's still grieving. His emotional tank was empty to start the day. This is where we are. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. (laughs) We're in the middle of nowhere. Take a left, and that's where we really are. And it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. This is the disciples trying to handle Jesus right? You know what handlers are, people who take care of people that need to be taken care of. And that's what they're trying to do, and, and good intentions. Jesus replies, or replied to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You could preach a lot of sermons on just that verse, couldn't you? But one of the things that just, to me, is most obvious here is he's asking them to do something they have no ability to do. I would add they probably have no desire to do because it's going to cost them. And he wants them to see you can't and you you don't care and you don't have the ability. And he's going to contrast that with his heavenly father who cares and can. You might want to write that down. God cares and God can. He is able. Then he says this, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. To me, the best happy meal you could have, right? And he says, then Jesus says something, again, incredibly profound, and we just read right over this. He says, bring them here to me. What's he saying? He's saying, take what you have, meager though it is, and bring it to me. Hear that? Jesus is saying, bring it to me. He's in the flesh, he's telling us, bring it to him who's not just human, but is divine. Why? Because we don't care and we don't have, he cares and he is able. Normal Christianity, remember, that's what we're talking about here, right? In the midst of suffering, compassion that not just cares and says, I'm sorry, but cares and does something about it, okay? He's going to double down. Matthew's on a roll. 
Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down in the grass. Now, we know from other parallel, this is the only, not the only one, but I think it's one of the few stories that's in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. So he directs them. We know from, from some of the others, he directed them to sit in groups of 50. And we call it feeding of the 5,000 because there were 5,000 men there, he says here at the end, besides women and children. So probably conservatively, you could say 10,000 people. That's a lot of Happy Meals. Five bucks a Happy Meal, that's a lot of money they don't have. He directed them to sit down in the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. I want you to notice the word he says three times. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Gave, gave, gave. That's what he does. That's how God spells love sometimes. G-I-V-E, for God so loved the world that he gave, okay? So here's what he did. He took what he had, and he did first things first. He thanked God for what he had, not for what he didn't have, and that he wasn't complaining for what he didn't have. He thanked God for what we do have, okay? Our Madison Square marketing companies make their living using advertisements and branding and commercials to help us agonize over what we don't have so that we will buy their product or service to meet a need we think we have, okay? And and Jesus is saying, I'm enough. God is enough, right? So he says, thank you. He gave thanks, vertical. And then he moves to the horizontal, and he doesn't give the bread and the fish to the people. What does he do? He gives the bread and the fish to the disciples, to the church, to people who are living normal Christianity, or at least that's what they're getting trained to do. Notice this normal Christianity. They sleep outdoors some. They don't have homes to lay their heads on. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his hand, remember? They are spending their lives doing one thing, making disciples, being trained to make disciples or training others to make disciples. That's what it's about, normal Christian life. And then the disciples give what he gives to them to others. So they're not just giving, they're giving what he gave them after they gave him their meager, he gave out of his abundance. God is not a God of scarcity. He is a God of abundance. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, okay? That's the Bible's way of saying he owns it all, right? When you drive over the, the Cooper River Bridge, heading to Mount Pleasant, if you look over to the right at the port of Charleston, Sometimes you can see, a lot of times you can see, it's a sea of BMWs, cattle on a thousand hills, right? A thousand BMWs, I could probably sell and make a little bit of coin, right? He owns so much more than that, it's just not even funny. And he has, not only does he own it, but he has access and he controls it in such a way that he can put a penny on a spot in Cambodia right now without any real effort. He can make it happen. 
at the right time in the right way. He's that and more. He gave, but he gave through the disciples to the people. Now, the people's perspective is they just know they're getting fish and chips or fish and bread, right? They're getting food, and they're getting a lot of it because there's 12 basketfuls left over. And I think the baskets are about the size of that subwoofer speaker over there. They're big baskets, and they have 12 left over. I'm sure it's not a coincidence that the 12 disciples ended up with a basket each of leftovers. Leftovers, you know, some of us don't like leftovers, right? When you're really, really hungry, that's when leftovers are the best, right? Because you're like, oh, man, I forgot all about this. And your, your stomach is like, that's a feast. Well, they feast, and it says that they were all satisfied. Look at this. Bring, let's see. He gave them, the disciples gave, verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And I imagine the word satisfied has to do with how you and I feel after a big Thanksgiving dinner or a big Christmas dinner or just a big... Uh, we went out to eat for a special occasion. We got to eat good food in quantity, good drink in quantity. You know, we're just satisfied. I'm not thirsty anymore. I'm not hungry anymore. And hopefully I've stopped in time to where I'm not, oh, you know, I'm not, I feel good. I feel full, but I'm good. They're satisfied. And then it says the disciples picked up 12 baskets fulls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate, so quick thought. God's going to take care of those who are taking care of others. Okay? So when you are in compassionate mode and you're serving others and you think nobody's taking care of you, God's got his eye on you, and he's going to give you a basket of leftovers. Now, it doesn't sound awesome, but I promise you, after you've done what you did, that's enough. Because what you did was so fulfilling, so satisfying, that the leftovers are just going to be icing on the cake. Look back to when Jesus was with the woman at the well in John 4, and the, uh, the disciples went to McDonald's, literally it says that in the Bible, and they went to McDonald's to get lunch. He's sitting there by the woman on the well. I'm just kidding. And they, um, the woman comes, and he has this conversation with her, and then she leaves to go tell the village everything. This man told me everything I ever did, and basically she trusts Jesus. And the disciples come back, and they're like so confused and like, He's like, I'm, I'm good. I don't need any lunch. They're like, where did you eat? He says, my satisfaction came from doing what I just did for that woman in that village. Was he physically still hungry? Of course. But he was not feeling it. He was satisfied. And God satisfies his people. That's why it says in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Well, if you read above, it's what we think about when we... What we're, when we worry about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, and what we're going to wear, right? Some of us are right now thinking, where am I going to have lunch? Because that's so important to us. And God's like, if you will keep the kingdom first, I will take care of that. Okay, I might steer you around Taco Bell because that's not really good for you, but I'm going to take care of you, going to fill you up. You're going to be satisfied. But it isn't always just going to be food that satisfies you because I have so much more for you than this. Then he says, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. That's belief picture number one. Now, we go from that crazy miracle to another crazy miracle. And this one isn't told in very many places. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Now, they're exhausted. They've been helping. I mean, if you've ever waited on tables or if you've ever cooked a meal for a large group of people, or if you've ever helped do the dishes after a large meal, or any of those things, and you've done it all day, 
you're, you're wiped out. Unfortunately, the disciples' day is about to get longer. They get in the boat. Jesus is like, go. I'll meet you there. Just go. I got to go. I got to get away. And so they take off in the boat. And it says, um, he go on ahead of him onto the other side while he dismissed the crowd. He dismisses the crowd. And then after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Okay? Why? Because he's still grieving. And this is what he does. The, the overflow of the power of God comes through fellowship with God, abiding in Christ. You're a branch. He's the vine. If you're not attached, there's no fruit. And if there's fruit hanging on a vine that's not attached, I promise you it's not real. One time I preached uh, John 15 on the branches and the vine and, and talked about the fruit, and I brought a colander up here with grapes, and it was almost all real grapes. But I put some rubber grapes on top, and I offered them to someone in the crowd. And they didn't have to taste to know that they were holding the rubber grape. I'm like, looks good. Not so satisfying, right? When we try to do God's work in our own strength, we're doing the equivalent of rubber grapes. But that's uh, another message for another time. Okay, so he says, uh, after he went, he dismissed them. Okay, and then he says, later that night, he was there alone. Verse 24, and the boat was already considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. They're trying to sail against the wind. Okay? I don't know what Bob Seeger would say about that, but he sang about it. But you can't sail into the wind. You have to go like this and kind of work your way across. And they're doing this all night, and they're not making good progress. Shortly before dawn, so they are, oh, it's all night. Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Hello. Walking on the lake. And I don't think it was like, uh, muddy flat, and there was just a little bit of water, so it looked like he was walking on the lake, right? He is crossing the lake, the Sea of Galilee, okay? This is a major, I mean, this is so big that when you look at the maps, like the world maps, you can see the Sea of Galilee. It's big. Walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, what do you think they did? <laughs> They're terrified. They were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried. They said and cried out in fear. They're scared. They're tired. They're probably thinking, oh, I'm either seeing something or I hope I'm just seeing something because that's scary. But Jesus immediately said to them, because he knew they needed to hear this quickly, Jesus said, take courage. It's I. It's me. Don't be afraid. Over and over and over, Scripture combines these two. Jesus says, don't be afraid, and then he tells us why. And yet, day after day after day, don't we deal with fear, right? We deal with the fear of rejection. We deal with the fear of failure. We deal with the fear of feeling the blank, right? We have how many phobias in the encyclopedia of psychology? Uh, it's crazy. Don't fear. Why? Take courage. It is I. I'm with you. Isn't that what Emmanuel means? God with us? Therefore, do not be afraid. Now, I love what Peter does here. Peter gives us a picture of faith, a picture of belief. Watch this. But Jesus immediately, okay, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. So he's not thinking this is much shallow water. 
He's not thinking that this is just, oh, I think I can figure this out. He's like, this is unbelievable, and yet because of who it is, I believe it. And so tell me to come, and I will trust that your command is as good as making it happen. Okay? I like this, too. The word if can also be translated since, and it's a legitimate translation. A lot of words have multiple meanings, and context can affect that. And and I'm not going to tell you it's since instead of if. I'm just going to say you could read it this way. Lord, since it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. I think either one works. Come, Jesus said. And Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water. Get out. Peter walked on water and came towards Jesus. This is a step. This is two steps. This is towards Jesus. This is movement on water, and he's about to freak out. And then he freaks out. But when he saw the wind, what does it say? He was afraid. That's right. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. I give him credit for, actually, those are perfect words, Lord, save me. You not want to write that down on a piece of paper and have it in the front of your Bible. Maybe just open the flap of your Bible and just write, Lord, save me. We don't just need it once. Peter asked him to save him. He goes to the source of salvation. Jesus means the Lord is my salvation. The Lord saves. It's a perfect uh, request. Immediately, Jesus answers his prayer and reaches out in his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why do you doubt? Now, you could read this a couple ways, right? You of little faith. There's a rebuke there. It's probably not that harsh probably pretty gentle, because you can also read it this way, you have little faith, because he did have faith, didn't he? He walked on water. Who's got that much faith? Who right now would go out to the Atlantic Ocean, right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, if Jesus were standing there, I know all of y'all would, because it'd be Jesus, right? And he's looking at Jesus, and so you're like, oh, that's probably not that hard. The other guys didn't. I don't think I would. I don't think I would believe it. I don't think I could do it. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And I know the answer, and you know the answer too. Just look right up there. He was afraid. And why was he afraid? Look right before that, because he saw the wind. How did he see the wind? Because he quit looking at Jesus. Isn't it so simple, right? This is like a seven-year-old can follow this. This is not complicated but it's impossible apart from God because he gives us the faith to believe. And when he climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat did something that we need to note. Mark it, underline it, circle it, highlight it. They worshiped. Those who were in the boat worshiped him, and this is how they worshiped him, two ways. First, they worship him with their mouth, their lips. They say, truly, you are the Son of God. And they didn't just say, truly, you are the Son of God. That was pretty good. It was not like that, right? You know, it was, oh, my goodness. I'm speechless. I've got no words. It's walking up to the lip of the Grand Canyon times 100. It's looking at the Atlantic Ocean for the first time and realizing, I can't see the other side. And you're just in awe. And it's connecting that awe to him. That 
is worship that moves you to say truth. Truly, he is the Son of God. Truly, he is divine. Divinity in the flesh. That's the first thing he does. He worships him with his lips. And the second thing he does is he worships. They worship him with their lives. And they literally gave their lives except for John. John the Baptist, not John the Baptist, John the, the Apostle. He was exiled. He didn't, he's the only one that wasn't martyred for his faith. Look what happened. And then when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. It's another town. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, what'd they do? They sent word to all the surrounding country. And the word got out. They were effective. They weren't just doing it. They were like, no, I'm just checking the box, evangelism done. No, no, it worked, and, and they, people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. And why, again, does Jesus do miracles? Because he wants them to hear the message. The miracles are the means to get people to hear the message. They'll believe the message if they see the miracles. Well, that doesn't always happen, right? But he does happen, and that's what was happening here. And so they worshiped him with their lips, and they worshiped him with their lives. Isn't that Hebrews 13, 15, and 16? You're like, I don't remember. Well, I don't either. Let me look it up. I quote, I, I refer to this verse an awful lot more than I quote it. Here's what it says. Through Jesus, therefore, and this is like wrapping up the book of Hebrews. Those of y'all who are studying it, you should really appreciate this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. To openly profess his name in a hostile culture where you can be killed for your faith, that's saying something more than saying it here in America. And then verse 16, and do not forget to do good. There's the fruit of your life. And to share with others in word and deed, to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Do you notice the word sacrifice a couple of times there? Look, this is like a normal Christian life. You and I are needy people. We don't have much. And we're some of the wealthiest people in the world, and we really don't have much. We just think we do. And we're hurting physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. We're hurting. And we're surrounded by people who are hurting. Here's the thing. Most of the people that are surrounding you and me, where we live, work, and play, most of those people do not have the one thing you have that gets you through what you have to get through. They don't know the Lord. They don't have a relationship with their creator. They don't. Why? in part because they maybe haven't heard. More and more and more, there are a greater growing number of people in America who don't even know one Christian personally. We have international students coming to Christ, uh, uh, Charleston Southern University, three miles from here, who will spend four years going to school here and never step inside the home of a Christian because they're never invited to have a meal with them. Because what Christians are reaching out to college students on that campus and inviting them for a meal in a Christian home so that they can see that we're not the boogeyman. Jesus was whooped. He was grieving. He had compassion on the crowds. He rolled up his sleeves and he got involved. And when the disciples said, we're tired, we're done, and we got nothing to offer, he said, you're exactly right, except that you have me. And he provided what they needed because he cared. And he empowered them to let him care through them. Okay? We should, we should, 
we could preach that exact message. We could just put this on record, push, stop on record, play this back 51 more Sundays this year. And there probably wouldn't be a better message for you and I to absorb, to put into action than what we just read in Matthew 14. What I would rather see happen is us to go live it. Okay? When we close our service today, we'll have a little taste of what that might look like because it might cost us financially and beyond. Okay? Because we're going to pray for a group that's going to do that. But it doesn't have to happen across the ocean. It needs to happen mostly across the street or the aisle or the table. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that that you made a way for us to get back to you, that we are citizens of the kingdom of light, but we're like stars in the sky. We're bright, but we are surrounded with darkness. And because of our light, we draw attention to ourselves, and sometimes that attention is not pleasant. We need you. We need you to give us the desire to even care. We don't even care, not really. There's suffering all around us. People that we know that are suffering and are keeping it inside. If we would just pray for them and look, take a moment, we would see it in their eyes. We don't want to get involved. It's hard. Even right now, it's a little warm in here, and we're, we're distracted by that inconvenient rise in the temperature instead of thinking compassionately about our neighbors right now, praying for them right now. It's hard. We are weak, and we need you, Jesus. Lord, save us from apathy and callous hearts and move in us and bring up in us and well up in us, Lord, to care about what you care about, to do what you would do, and remembering that it satisfies us but that at the end of the day, it's going to cost us too. May we have the courage to believe that you are with us, therefore we don't have to be afraid. May we have the confidence that not only you care, but that you can and that you will because you already have been, you are, and will continue to do what you do, which is bring glory to a dark world. And I pray you'll move in our hearts and our minds to change us, to transform us from the inside out, to be the gospel light to the community where we live, work, and play. We can't be it everywhere, but we can be it where we are. If we would just surrender to you and absorb and embrace the discomfort that comes with following Jesus. It's more than discomfort. You tell us to pick up our cross But Lord, we can't even get past the inconvenience of skipping a meal or being uncomfortable. Lord, grow us up. Get us off of this baby milk and help us to eat real spiritual food that will cause us to have a sustaining walk with you. And Lord, help us to realize that this is normal Christianity. 101. We ask that you would do this in us and through us as you hand the bread and fish to us. May we not hold on to it and just eat it. May we pass it on. In Jesus' name, amen.